Hello and welcome to Contemplations. This is part three, I believe, of the cults mini-series that we're doing and today we're looking to get sued and we're talking about Scientology and I am joined once again by uh, Stelios Paniotu. Got your second name right Thank this time. you, yeah you did. Thank you very much. And BB Dade, also known as Bo Dade. I don't have any more nicknames for you, I'm not going to do the same twice, but I've got to come up with one at some point. And um, yes, we're going to be looking at what Scientologists actually believe, as well as the structure of their organization, which um, seems to be very exploitative, is my kind of summary of everything that's going on here. But it, it, it is actually insane. The past couple of cults we've looked at, I've, I've tried to be a bit charitable. That's over with. Like Scientology, it's obviously a full-blown cult. You know, the, the word cult is kind of epitomized by Scientology, I think, and the fact that it's such an organized thing, the fact that they sue people into oblivion for criticizing them, means, in my mind, that they are utter scum and deserve no sympathy whatsoever, and we are going to tear them a new one, basically. So I hope you enjoy us being horrible about insane people, because I'm going to talk about the life of L. Ron Hubbard, and it, it reads like the script of a comedy. It's unbelievably... I, I just, I was reading it and it's just like, surely this isn't all true. And then I look it up, um, I check the sources, like I checked his military records and things like that with the official Navy, US Navy sources and compared it to the Church of Scientology website. And it's just like, oh, right. So they're just lying about him. He's not this great man. He's actually one of the biggest losers I think I've ever read about, ever. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I, I actually mean it. So let's get on to his life, shall we? Because... I get the impression that neither of you know especially much about Scientology, so I I'm going to fill you in. Anything other than uh, some, let's say, famous people who are affiliated with it, like Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise yeah. and John Travolta. Mm -hmm. well, uh, I know a fair bit, and I, okay. quite, I can know a fair bit about the life of L. Ron Hubbard. Okay. So, yeah, I've never Sorry. read Dianetics. No, nor have I. But, um, but yeah, I know a reasonable amount. But okay. I'm looking to learn something here, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Is, yeah, okay, good. Mm -hmm. So um, it's also worth mentioning as well, um, I might forget to mention it later, that the reason that so many actors and actresses um, seem to be involved in Scientology is that they've got like a recruitment scheme whereby if you agree to do the Scientology stuff, they put you through acting school and things like that. Okay, I didn't know. So, so they, they basically try and buy people in Hollywood, but it's, it's like a poison chalice in that, sure, you might make it in the film industry, but then you owe a considerable amount of money to the Church of Scientology, and if you leave, they will harass you, stalk you, defame you, all sorts of stuff, but I don't really care about that, so let them try. So, let's start with L. Ron Hubbard, shall we? He was born in 1911 to a teacher and a Navy officer, so one would imagine that's quite comfortable, um, especially for 1911, those are good professions. So you, you'd imagine he had a reasonable, um, stable upbringing, but he did move around a lot because of his father's role in the Navy, so it seemed like he... I think that does shape how people um, perceive the world and how they carry themselves. You can kind of tell when someone's moved around a lot because they tend to be a bit more um, introverted, maybe. Uh, they're not nearly as, as personable as someone who stayed in the same place. Um, and that's not really their fault, obviously. I think kids, especially little kids, do need stability, some sort of stability. 
So if you are moving around constantly in your sort of younger formative years, it's probably not ideal. It's not necessarily a problem. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean you're going to have psychological issues in adulthood. But yeah, it's probably not ideal. Wasn't he born in Nebraska? Is that right? Something like that, yeah. All right, okay. It's not a, not a classic naval uh, place for naval officers to be, is it? Nebraska. <laughs> but um, all right, anyway. But um, supposedly when he was in school, um, in the sophomore year of high school, he gets bad grades. And then in the junior year, he gets held back and then drops out of his second attempt. And then he attempts to join the Navy Academy and fails. And then he attends a course at a YMCA, um, which was called Woodward High, if you're interested. He gets reasonable passing grades so he can finally finish high school. And um, yeah, this this doesn't come across as some sort of religious messiah so far, does it? Um, so he somehow manages to get to George Washington University. Um, he was there for two years, but gets bad grades and drops out. And whilst he was there, he joined the Marine Reserves and he served for five weeks before being discharged. And the military records, which people have since been able to view, um, show that he was coded as not for re-enlistment. Basically, yeah, this guy is incapable of doing the job. Bad at taking orders, I guess. I wouldn't say necessarily the taking orders part, more so he was a bit stupid. Okay. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> so he, he did stay in DC after he dropped out of university so and prevent. Sorry, uh, sorry, just to put this into context, this is before World War Two, are we talking? Yes. Yeah, long before. Okay. I think it's between World War One and World War Two. So um he stayed in DC and befriended a bunch of psychiatrists, which gave him lots of insights into the profession. He managed to see some uh like mental health wards, I suppose you can call them. That's what they'd be called in the modern day. They probably had a different name back then. But he kind of got embedded in that world for a little while, although um, he was somewhat encouraged because one of the psychologists he befriended had a belief that you didn't need a piece of paper to qualify you to be a psychiatrist. Anyone can really do it as long as they've got the ability to do it, which I'm somewhat sympathetic towards, but also I think the whole notion of psychiatry is nonsense as well. So, of course, I'm not going to think it's very hard to qualify because it's a load of pseudoscience and it's, you know, oh, we're going to hypnotise you and you're going to get, you know, these suppressed memories bubble up to the surface, never mind the fact that when you hypnotise someone, you make them suggestible so you can implant false memories in them quite easily of, oh, I've got this very vague recollection of this thing happening to me and it's provably false. These sorts of methods are nonsense in my view and more harm than good. Um, just worth saying. So, fast forwarding to 1933, he married and uh, would go on to father some children. It's not really too pertinent. I've tried to keep it very bare bones because you know, the details of his life aren't as interesting as how his life have, has shaped how he, he formed Scientology. So, he and his family were very poor and um, Hubbard started writing fiction stories, which he seemed to be relatively good at. So by 1940, he'd written hundreds of short stories that he'd wrote. That he'd basically been writing for pulp fiction magazines, which, um, of course, now is sort of synonymous with Quentin Tarantino's film. But it, it is, of course, borrowed from the the sort of uh, magazines with cheap, pulpy paper rather than anything else, rather than the glossy 
ones which were seen as more expensive. So he'd also written a few full-length novels, the first of which was published in 1937. I think it was about um, a blonde-haired person who'd been accepted by the Blackfoot tribe or something like that. So it's sort of Native American theme story, but it was well received by the New York Times, which um, I think certainly helped his career because by this point they were sort of tastemakers um, in literature, which they still are to some extent today. So on New Year's Day in 1938, he had a reaction to dental anesthetic gas um, in what was a routine procedure, and he claims that this triggered a, a revelatory near-death experience, which as far as religious experiences go, the dental chair, I, I, I'm not so sure, because um, having been put under anaesthetic at the dentist, it didn't feel like a religious experience, it just felt weird. I didn't feel transcendent at all. I suppose it was the near-death part. I think he had a bad reaction to it, and so that might be why he came close to death and it kind of revealed to him some aspect of life. But it's not entirely clear what actually happened here. I wasn't able to dig up any more details about it. I didn't. I haven't, this is new to me. I didn't know that part of his life. Actually, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems like the first sort of inclination of some sort of religious experience. I suppose you could say. I don't know if it is uh, religious or not, but I think that uh, very frequently people talk about experiences they had and. There are two ways to think of it. Uh, there are more, but I think one way is to take that experience at face value. And the other is to have a more third-person approach to it and try and find out you know, what happened. Were, were there something in the brain that could trigger such an experience or alter it? There's always the element of interpretation of it. So I really don't know what to say on this, mm -hmm. but I think that this is where the there will be divergence in ways that people proceed to understand such experiences. Because I've heard a lot about people who talk about near-death experiences, and uh, I really don't, don't know what to make of them. Because it seems to me that, for instance, when people talk about being in a coma for years, and then they have zero brain activity, but then it's the brain starts functioning a bit. Well, I mean, probably it's the, it's the brain. But uh, there's a propensity to people to want to claim that somehow they are special and I think that a lot of people who who have been associated with cults they don't go out telling them that I'm basically nobody they try and create an elevate image for themselves of themselves Hubbard certainly did that and lots of accounts of um, people who knew him personally said that he was rather full of himself despite having absolutely no reason to be yeah um, but yeah, I've, I've had a few near-death experiences just because I'm stupid sometimes. And um, yeah, they're just horrible. I don't know why anyone says, oh, it was like a religious experience. I'm, I'm not sure that's what he was claiming necessarily, but it changed his perspective in some way. But no, like, it, it's just thoroughly unpleasant. It reminds you of your mortality. It's not nice. It doesn't feel like a religious experience. It feels like it's something that's quite um, sort of dehumanizing in a sense it's just like oh right so death can find you at any moment like there was a time where I nearly choked on some steak because I had like steak fat and it was quite long I tried to chew it but I, I couldn't chew it down and so I tried to swallow it and it got a bit stuck yeah 
I shouldn't laugh. It is funny. Sorry, I've had the same thing with some bacon. Nearly, nearly suffocated to death on some bacon. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. Things we love <laughs> turn out to kill us. It's terrible. But no, it, I just thought, oh, my final moment's going to be in a Toby Carvery. <laughs> which, um, if if you're in Britain, it, it doesn't have. You know, it's it's seen as a little bit um, proletarian. I think is a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I've heard many people say who didn't buy into Elrond Hubbard's persona that he was just extraordinarily arrogant. Um, but I think that near-death experiences, um, any sort of sort of general anaesthetic, or uh, any, it's even sometimes just dreams, just dreams. Any sort of psychedelic experience, everyone experiences it a bit different. You know how sometimes um, people can witness the same event and they walk away and their eyewitness testimony is completely different pretty much completely different or we get it in comments on things that people hear pretty much hear different things almost to what you're saying they disagree on what you've just said and it's like it's right there the evidence right there of what was said and what wasn't said and people are arguing about what was said so when it comes to something like a psychedelic experience or a near-death experience or anything like that even dreams um Sometimes some people are going to take away from it what seems like a, a sort of a wildly extrapolated conclusions about what they experienced. I, I just think that is mm-hmm. sort of that that happens all the time. And to be somewhat charitable to him, he was probably um, feeling a bit funky from the anaesthetic, and he he did nearly die because he had a reaction to it. So if you've had a reaction when you're not necessarily yourself as well, that's going to kind of elevate that. So, you know, I, I was poking fun, but it, you know, I can kind of understand. It even includes, I would say, even any sort of traumatic experience. It doesn't need to be near death. It doesn't need to be as extreme as that. It doesn't need to be an actual, you know, strong psychedelic experience or anything. It could just be something triggers in your mind that suddenly, for whatever reason, you become sort of painfully aware of your own mortality or something. Someone close to you dies or whatever it is, or you nearly die, or you weren't actually injured in any way. Just like, you know, um, a car nearly hit you and suddenly something flips in your mind and you're psychologically different from that moment onwards. That sort of happens to us all to various extents. Um, very true. So obviously... I didn't know this event in Elwyn Hubbard's life, but it seems like it was, you could argue it was a fairly pivotal one. Mm. Is that what? Is that what he said? Um, no, it's just kind of implied that it happened and perhaps this is like the, the sort of snowball that started an avalanche. Mm. That's kind of the impression that I get might have happened, that it kind of put this seed in his mind that, that went on to grow, maybe. Um, it's just something to throw in there to kind of me- get a, a measure of the man, really. So did you have a uh, No, to I say was saying that it's on? like with people who say that they see light. I mean, in some dreams also, you, you see them in, in color. And they say that, you know, I see light, therefore it's like heaven, the doors of heaven opening wide for me to cross. And mm. then they come back to, to life and they, they can't make sense of it. It's one way of interpreting things. Mm. I mm. think, it, as you said, it's, it involves wild extrapolations and uh, seems to be the least plausible way to think of things. Mm. 
Right. Mm. I'm going to quickly fire through some of his naval career. Can anyway. I can I add something about uh, the uh, the beginning? Sure. Yeah, because I think that it's really important to say that he was traveling a lot with his family. Mm-hmm. Because I think that this, as you said, Bo, it, it is important for stability. Because many children who travel around, they feel that they lose their friends, and they become scared of attachment. So I'm I'm willing to bet that somehow there is such an issue, or w- without knowing the case, that there is such an issue of scare of uh, being scared of attachment. On the one hand, but also wanting to have an audience to combat loneliness or feelings of loneliness on the other. Because if you want people to be so, somehow like followers of this kind, it seems to me that you you, ha- you hate being alone. Basically, mm-hmm. You want people to, to love you and adore you. Well, when you find out his marital history, you will soon find out that you're pretty much spot on the money there. Okay. So in 1941, he joined the US Navy as a lieutenant junior grade in the United States Naval Reserve. Um, he didn't get through through perhaps meritocratic means because, of course, his father was in the Navy. Um, I think he used his father's connections to get in and at a rank that he clearly wasn't fit to, to do. So he was sent to the Philippines via Australia the day after Pearl Harbor and he was assigned, assigned to an Intel billet uh, when he arrived. And this is... Um, a quote from the U.S. Naval Attaché to Australia, and this is from February the 14th, 1942, so about a year afterwards or so. Um, This officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous um, and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think that he has unusual ability in most lines. These characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> so um, argumentative and arrogant mm-hmm. garrulous sort of argumentative um, one thing I would say is that it seems to be well it not seems to be it is the case that lots of the details of his life I think deliberately um, are sort of up for debate so one thing I read or saw um, was that the naval record said that during wartime he never left the continental United States Oh, really? Yeah. But it's also, I know, a big part of his legend that he fought in the Pacific. He definitely didn't fight in the Pacific. Not fight, sorry. Didn't see combat, but was just, well, in Australia. So 1942, it's the war Mm -hmm. in the Pacific. Pearl Harbor's December 7th, 1941, right? So it's 1940. So there's full-blown naval combat with the Japanese in the Pacific. uh, So, um, yeah, I don't think even he claims mm -hmm. he saw action or anything in I'm, naval I'm not even but... entirely sure he got to Australia. I think he got turned right. back because he right. sent right. Um, a, an intelligence boat basically 3,000 miles out of the way to nowhere and they're just like this is an unacceptable waste of resources go back So he was an to officer. Right. He, was he was in officer. charge of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, this officer and it says at the start of the quote. Um, oh, sorry. So he was sent back to the United States because of clearly being incompetent, and was assigned to the command of a naval yard patrol vessel in Massachusetts. Um, which, so that's on the East Coast? Yeah, the other so coast. So get him as far away from from action as possible. <laughs> so 
The shipyard's commander stated that Hubbard was not temperamentally fitted for independent command and requested he be immediately relieved of duty. He was, in 1943, he was then put on a sub-chasing vessel and within five hours of being on the vessel and being in command of it, he thought they had encountered an enemy submarine and then this followed um, a 68-hour combat ordeal um, in which uh, it seems like they were chasing... Um, ghosts, in a sense. They spent 68 hours in combat and apparently an investigation found that there was no sub and that Hubbard had mistaken a known iron deposit for a sub, which you would think is kind of 101 if you're, you know, if you're looking for a large metal object, you should probably know where the iron deposits are because those are going to ping up. I mean, that's... I, I've never chased a submarine before, but... One would presume that, you know, you want to discount the false positives and that it's a possibility. But no, L. Ron Hubbard, he was certain. He knew that they, there was an enemy submarine because he's L. Ron Hubbard and he's going to get all the action. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous that they spent 68 hours yeah. fighting an imaginary iron deposit. Well, a real iron deposit, but an imaginary submarine, sorry. See, I've heard a variant on that, that it was in Oregon, which is on the West Coast still, mm -hmm. and it was some sort of floating tree trunk or floating log or something that he thought was a submarine. And again, sort of fired on it. And, well, it's just completely embarrassing, isn't it? It sort of reveals the fact that you don't know what you're doing at all. I mean, that that's... That you're entirely incompetent. Not that's... just a little bit subpar, mm. but nowhere near... I feel like even if you got someone who knew absolutely nothing about what they were doing, mm. they could still do better than that. <laughs> mm. I, I don't know what you think, Stelios, but... Well, it seems to me that he was uh, panicked. and uh, Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, he doesn't seem to be fitted for independent command, but also they say temperamental. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's funny because it, it more indicates character. Mm-hmm rather than you know a mistaken judgment it's an it's an a character assessment that this person fair. is disposed to behave and think that way rather than just make a, the occasional mistake and to be fair both people mistakes, by the way. both people um that we've read from so far in the military said similar things that it's more his personality he's got the ability um you know mentally to be capable but it's just that he doesn't have the disposition to do it. So the final straw for his naval career was that he ordered his crew to fire four shells from the ship's three-inch guns at a number of, and a number of rifle and pistol shots in the direction of Coronado Island. Um, and, these, and this island belonged to Mexico, um, in which um, he was anchored in their waters and he fired towards a, a Mexican naval garrison and um, funnily enough, um, the Mexican government complained to the US government and he was removed from command because he fired on, yeah, he, I, and this is, of Were course, they warning shots? I, I don't know. I think he was just so rubbish that yeah. they didn't hit anything. There's no, I, I wasn't able to find an account of any damage or fatalities. Okay. But um, also the notion of you're, you're on a boat. Um, moored in the waters supposedly a far enough distance that you can fire the ship's guns and you're shooting pistol rounds in the general direction of it 
Yeah, later. that's into the realm. I didn't know this particular incident either. That's in the realm of sort of full blown craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's lucky he wasn't sort of court martialed and put in prison for something like that. He should have that's been. That's way yeah. beyond sort of dereliction of duty or um, or, or just incompetence. That's that's a bit mental to me. He attacked a US ally. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, there was a quote, if you scroll back up a little bit, there was a quote from one of them that said earlier in his career that said he should be removed from command. Um, um, scroll up a bit more, I think it was. Um, well, anyway, it said, I recommend that he be removed from active duty. Oh, that was it. A request that he be immediately relieved of duty. Mm-hmm. That is one step away from saying... Yeah, we need to arrest this person. Yeah, that's that's as that's as damning as it gets in the mm-hmm. military, in the navy, that you that we request is immediately removed from active duty. That's sort of as damning as it can be. Um, again, you get just get the picture of the character of the man, uh, not fit to be an officer. Let's say panicked. He constantly sees threats all around. He wants. He seems to be wanting to use power and exercise trigger power happy or something trigger yeah. happy three inch guns are not small <laughs> three inch guns are quite, it's quite big really um like quite large cannon really um but yeah I just, yeah anyway so here's a report about the incident um from a rear admiral um in hubbard's investigation and it says um Consider this officer lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. He acts without forethought as to probable results. He is believed to have been sincere in his efforts to make the, his ship efficient and ready, not considered qualified for command or promotion at this time, recommended duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised, which is very kind, really, considering what had just happened. Okay, well, you described him as a loser at the beginning. Yeah. But I think that it, seems fair. It's like this guy's an is a loose cannon, a, a loser. He needs to be watched at all times. I mean, it, yeah. This seems to be a comment for a report written by an admiral, rear admiral. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that they would have collaborated. They were on the same ship. I think the the it's the other officer who was the captain of the other ship, who had contact with him. That's a bit more suggestive that when he said that he suggests that he be immediately relieved of duty. Maybe it says this after an investigation there. So usually if Mm -hmm. there was a big investigation, you'd get someone from senior brass to sort of oversee an investigation. If three inch guns were fired against an ally, that's sort of fairly serious, even if nothing, even if they didn't hit anything. Um, But yeah, you get that all through his life. People Mm -hmm. that don't owe him anything that aren't that haven't bought into his persona and everything and they give a sort of a real judgment just say things like that repeatedly don't they and um i think from this point onwards he basically complained of lots of health issues and tried to weasel his way out of being uh, in the military altogether and eventually he, he left the military and rather than returning to his family he stayed in california um and he befriended the occultist rocket engineer, Jack Parsons, who um, you may have heard of already, actually. I had heard of him before. who was a follower of Aleister Crowley. And um, he also became involved, even though he moved into the mansion of Jack Parsons. Um, 
he became involved with his girlfriend, who was 21 years old. By this point, he was married and had a child, by the way. He uh, hadn't seen them since he'd been in the military. Um, and apparently, they collaborated on a sex magic ritual in an attempt to summon Babylon, which is the premier goddess of Crowley's pantheon. So he was clearly into some weird stuff but long before Scientology had been invented. Well, it was for the greater good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> occult stuff. It is occult, yeah. Do either of you know much about Alistair Crowley? Name, a a name, reasonable amount, name, yeah. Name he was um, English occultist, wasn't he? Yeah. I've heard some, but not much. I mean, this isn't about him, but just to briefly say, just I, I, I'm, sort of, I don't like Alistair Crowley. I don't buy any of that. Of course, any yeah. of that stuff at all. He's a creepy re weirdo. Yeah, reject everything about Alistair Crowley. <laughs> so the fact that Elron Hubbard was sort of a fan, mm -hmm. or around people that followed him, or anything at all like that. So yes, they they did all of this occultist stuff. Um, insane obviously it, it makes no sense it's weird creepy and degenerate as well and um, as if that wasn't enough Hubbard and Parsons girlfriend who became Hubbard's girlfriend and tried to defraud Parsons of a considerable amount of money in some sort of scheme where they would sail ships across the Pacific I think this is um, shortly after the war had finished by this point and um, basically they used that as an excuse to defraud him of lots of money because they had no guarantee that they had returned the money that Parsons had put down on the boats back to him and he was forced to sell his mansion hmm, nice um, so yes he also, uh, Parsons went on to die at the age of about 37 so it seems like it kind of ruined him but I don't feel too bad for the, some creepy weirdo occultist um, he married Parsons' former girlfriend, despite still being married. Um, and he was also claiming disability allowance. Um, I think this is probably fraudulently, um, as well as getting a small income from his writing. And in 1947, he wrote to the Veterans Administration asking for an increase in his war pension and also claimed he needed a psychoanalyst, even though he never actually saw any combat. So... He's just a scumbag who's, who's trying to game the system to his own advantage. A bigamist. And that as well, yeah. So he's married to two women there. Two women. He's nice. Stealing money from people, trying to claim that he even deserves a military pension after his appalling track record. <laughs> Why were they giving him a pension? I don't know. He doesn't deserve it, though, does he? I suppose because he wasn't dishonorably discharged. He was discharged because of medical stuff. He's able to claim one. He he basically is one of those people that weasels their way through rules to get as much benefit to himself as possible. So, in 1948, he was, because he'd been writing lots of science fiction and things like that, he went to a science fiction convention and he said, writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. If a man really wants to make a million dollars, the best way um, would be to start his own religion. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.